This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Sarah Milne, a senior lecturer at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Sarah and I spoke about her recent book, Corporate Nature, an insider's ethnography of global conservation. In the book, Sarah recounts her experiences with a conservation policy implemented in the Cardamom Mountains of Cambodia by a major international environmental NGO, Conservation International. This policy is called a conservation agreement, and it is a type of payment for ecosystem services or PES scheme. These involve an external actor engaging in a transaction to pay a local resource user as an individual or a group to incentivize them to provide important public goods, in this case, environmental conservation. Throughout the book, Sarah describes how the new conservation agreement model developed within Conservation International and how it grew into what in the commons field we would call an institutional panacea, or a solution that is scaled up as a corporate product and applied across a range of contexts. Sarah worked on the ground in Cambodia as this policy was implemented there, and describes the challenges it faced when the simplifying theory and requirements of the model confronted political and ecological complexity in the field. My favorite point that Sarah makes during our conversation is that we need to worry less about the promotion of a particular model and more about developing what she calls an ethics of practice. I loved this book, and if you find her conversation interesting, I absolutely recommend that you take a look at it. Enjoy my conversation with Sarah Mill. Okay, Sarah, well, it's it's great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you, as I mentioned over the last 20 minutes, about this book, Corporate Nature. Um, and the first question I have for you is the first question I now have for everyone on the podcast, which I call the origin story question. So you found yourself in Cambodia working for Conservation International, and I'd love to hear your story about what led you to that point. What were your previous experiences and decisions that led you to that position and to have the experiences that you write about in this book? Thanks, Michael. Okay, so the origin story um, begins in a rather conventional setting, which is suburban Melbourne. I grew up in the 1980s in in what was a, a, a bit of a middle-class bubble, you could say. But I guess I always had this sense of um, unease about the world out there and the environmental consequences and the social consequences of inner city well-being. So, so I guess that's the very beginning of the story. Um, and growing up in an educated household with parents who were scientists and medically inclined, I ended up in a scientific discipline and I studied engineering. So there was this kind of impetus that I always had to find solutions um, and I was originally originally schooled in this very technical realm of finding technical fixes um, to problems um, but it became a source of frustration for me so so I trained as an engineer and as soon as I finished I got out of the city and I went bush and I went remote and I spent a lot of time um, in remote parts of far, far north Queensland and Northern Territory in Australia, um, undoing what was an engineering education and relearning how to connect to nature and to people. And so that 
um, brought me to my first job, which was working with remote Aboriginal communities in Central Australia in the desert. Um, and I was I was hired as an engineer, um, but the job was around appropriate technology. So it was about building solutions that fitted with the context. Um, over time, I worked in that um, capacity. I realised that for all of the good hardware and good design and good technology that we might have had, the problems were ultimately social and political. So I kind of, um, I reached my limit as an engineer. And at that moment, an opportunity came up um, to do a program. It's a little bit like the Peace Corps program in the US. Um, the Aust Australian government had a program that supported volunteers to go overseas. And that was when a door opened to me and it was Cambodia. And the, the line of continuity was, oh, you've been working with remote Aboriginal communities or remote Indigenous communities. Go and do the same in Cambodia, but this time it's a conservation project. So I came into this big conservation project, which was being run by Conservation International um, in southwest Cambodia, not as a biologist, not as an um, ecologist, so not a traditional background in, in conservation, but as sort of a little bit left a field, engineering through to community engagement and somehow I landed in that place. Um, but I guess I was good at operating in remote areas and doing field work and I did find my home in facilitating these long participatory processes and dialogues with ethnic minority and Indigenous communities in Cambodia who were feeling very aggrieved about this conservation project. So I kind of cut my teeth in Cambodia. I spent three years there um, initially working for Conservation International on, on this, these aspects of community engagement in what was a protected area project. Um, that's the long, windy story for how I got there. <laughs> okay. I've heard many longer and windier stories, so that's it's not okay. too long. Yeah. <laughs> it so felt long telling you that, but it's kind of, I guess, the, the grand narrative is rogue engineer ends up in a faraway place. Okay. Um, and how many years in total did you work for Conservation International in Cambodia? Uh, so I initially did three years, um, mm -hmm. and then I, at that point, ideas about payments for environmental services, payments for ecosystem services were sort of hitting the headlines and people were getting interested in that. Um, and that was also the time at which I felt like I needed to go back to uni and I wanted to do a PhD. And so I dreamt up a PhD proposal, um, sitting out there at the ranger station, what is this going to be about? Um, and I was really curious about trying to work out how payments for environmental services worked in practice. Was this a solution or not? So I think I was actually, when I dreamt up my PhD proposal, thinking about this is a panacea, you know, this is the next fix. This is the next big policy that's going to solve all of the problems we have. Um, does that answer your question? So I left yeah. in, I left to go and be a grad student and I was fortunate enough to be able to negotiate a relationship in which I could do my PhD research in partnership with Conservation International in that same field site. So I could, so I didn't continue to work for CI Conservation International, I might call them CI in our mm -hmm. conversation, um, but I was still associated with the project. So it ended up being a very long-term engagement. Okay. 
after my PhD, I then went back and worked for them again. So it was a kind of, yeah. Okay. And you yeah. don't now? No, no, yeah. no. Um, so I write about this in the book. There's a whole chapter dedicated to sort of the, the relationship that I had with them, which was, mm. yeah, initially um, sort of starry-eyed young volunteer into grad student who kind of transforms into a different kind of intellectual and acquires different kinds of analytical skills. Then it was somebody, then it was more of a, a head office hired technical advisor role. And then ultimately we kind of, we broke up might be a way of phrasing it. Um, yeah, it was an awkward relationship because I had researched their project as well as worked inside it. Sure, um, but it's but they but that's it's a unique opportunity as well because from a sort of a quest from questions of research it gives you um, a perspective and it gives you insider knowledge um, that enables you to do analyses and it enables you to see things that otherwise you wouldn't see. Okay, so um, you mentioned working working in Cambodia. You mentioned these protected areas, but really. The it seemed to me in reading the book. Well, so actually, one question I have is: Is the book really an outgrowth of your PhD dissertation? Yeah. Is it like the okay? I didn't put is that together a, when I was reading it. Okay. Yeah, it's a PhD plus story. Yeah, sure. Because yeah, yeah. The book, yeah, it draws on about a decade's worth of data. So it's um, it yeah, it it came out of the PhD, but after my PhD, I went back and worked for Conservation International. Um, not as an ethnographer, not officially as a researcher, but a series of things happened, as I describe in the book, um, around sort of corruption inside the conservation project and, and problems with um, illegal logging and violence, and I felt compelled to write about that. So that became a way of extending what was the PhD into this sort of bigger ethnographic project. Okay. So the main policy you talk about in the book is a payment for ecosystem services scheme or PES scheme. Can you talk to us about what a PES scheme, can we just start with nuts and bolts? Like what is a PES yeah. scheme? And one of my favorite parts of the book, Sarah, is that you mentioned that there are different, there are actually like, I think five different narratives that you mentioned that kind of grew up within CI, kind of in the headquarters in DC that were used to promote this new policy. Can you talk about what this is supposed to do and what some of the most important narratives that were used to promote it were? Yeah, so in the book, I'm talking about the crafting of the silver bullet. Um, and it's it's the origin story of the policy idea. So, and I think it's important to look at that because policies are propped up through certain stories or narratives and um, Emery Rowe was a great inspiration to me in, in the sense of the knowledge that we inherit and the sort of the narratives that we inherit as things that sustain conventional wisdom or apparent solutions. Um, so in the policy environment of Washington DC in the early 2000s, um, this idea of paying for results um, became very popular and I think it originally came out of the World Bank um, with Ag Aggie Kiss, who wrote a paper with Paul Ferraro, and they wrote they wrote about direct payments for biodiversity conservation. In parallel, you had Sven Wander, who is who was working for the Center for International Forestry Research, C4. He wrote that 
original nuts and bolts working paper, which gave us some basic definitions about what payments for ecosystem services are. Um, so it seemed to be a paradigmatic shift away from attempts to harmonise conservation and development into a mode of thinking that's more transactional and more market-based. So the fundamental idea is that you can broker some kind of agreement between a willing buyer and a willing seller, and what is being transacted is environmental services. Um, and environmental services can be thought of in very broad terms that might be more often than not, it's probably some kind of behaviour change which leads to a conservation outcome. Um, it's not necessarily um, payments in response to measured changes in ecosystems or biological conditions or species numbers. Usually it's payments for, payments for services rendered, if that makes sense. So it's a shift from a project-based approach into a market-based approach very broadly speaking. And that was interesting. It was a time also when the critical literature in human geography was getting interested in neoliberal natures and intersections between neoliberal thinking and conservation practice. Um, although I didn't know that literature at the time when I dreamed up my original doctoral proposal, I was much more in the nuts and bolts mindset at the outset. Um, yeah, so the kinds of narratives that sustain the PES thinking are, yeah, let's pay for results. Um, there were also protectionist ideas woven into that as well. Um, you know, nature is a global public good. We must lock it up as though it were in a museum and pay for that. And, and, and you know, that requires public payments. It implies distant buyers, potentially global buyers for this global public good. Um, so there are questions of scale that, that come through there. Um, and there are other ideas about what is a community or what, what are these sellers of environmental services as well, um, that communities don't need to have development projects. They just need to be able to make rational market-like or business-like decisions in their own interests. So let's change the incentives so that nature becomes a livelihood choice or conserving nature becomes a rational decision for people on the ground. Okay. Sarah, can you talk to me about the relationship between these narratives and kind of group identity? Because one of the things I feel like I've seen, one of the things I think we see in the promotion of a panacea or a silver bullet or a new policy is that this is done by a particular group. And it's there's that group your adherence to that panacea kind of becomes part of how you align yourself with that group. But then part of that alignment, what I feel like I've seen also requires that you, you kind of have another, you have an out group that's promoting a different policy and you need to say, okay, well, we're not them. And what we're doing is an improvement on what they're doing, or maybe they're causing some problems. And it felt like part of what these narratives were doing in being promoted by a group of mostly economists, as I understand it. Mm. And this is one of the tricky parts of this, too, is that I feel like, you know, in a part of this dialogue, it's also important not to not to outgroup economists and say, oh, well, economists, why do they do these things? Right. But it's like it did seem like a part of what was happening here is that there was a need to promote these policies by denigrating what they were trying to replace which was being promoted by another group of folks that were trying to do things that were quote unquote softer and less direct and less results-based. 
Can you talk a bit about how you saw that process unfold as well in the promotion of the PES kind of panacea? Yeah, so so there were, um, it's a very human story and it's a, it, and as you said, there's a, there are kind of tribal elements to it, um, which, which is the paradigm or what are the, what is it, what are the set of values that you adhere to? Um, and so there were, there was a sense of, I was able to witness a paradigm shift inside head office. Mm. And this was about how we think about the tensions between people and nature and how in, in policy terms, do we approach um, solutions? To, to, the, to these tensions and trade-offs between conservation and development. Um, so, yeah, there was a, there, this did cut along disciplinary lines, um, which had underpinning values and underpinning sort of implications about how you see the world. Um, so I guess the economists were the, um, the, the, the main policy entrepreneurs in this space. Um, and I think that discipline does lend itself to simplification, generalization, and, and, and the, a desire to build abstracted models about reality. Um, and that was in contrast to others who were more um, inclined to be sort of in, in the social development space, more like social scientists who've been trained otherwise, um, who think in terms of processes and place and context. So it was a, a sort of the paradigm shift in policy did correspond with different groups of people that thought in different ways. Okay. Um, but yeah, it speaks to how panaceas come out of sort of, yeah, potentially groupthink in some ways when, when you have an in-group or a powerful group whose ideas um, can prevail over the ideas of others. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, I, I really like how you put it. Well, the, the idea of this as being like a paradigm shift, I think is really powerful because that speaks to the difficulties in getting people to speak across boundaries and paradigms, right? Because that's part mm, of what we mean mm. by paradigm is that it's hard to look beyond it. And yeah. talking about this as a human story makes a lot of sense to me because one of the concerns I also have is, okay, we can criticize a panacea but how do we make sure that we're not part of a process of propping up the next panacea as we criticize the current one? Because that could happen because we're all humans too. Right. Right. Um, and I think it's, it's fair enough to say that among the social sciences, economics has the reputation for valuing generality the most, for, for valuing analytical simplicity the most. And that, of course, goes yeah. along with generality. Um, yeah. Can I ask you, I struggle with this question when it's asked of me about kind of where you situate yourself in terms of your professional identity. If someone was going to ask you what percentage of you is an, feels like an economist versus an anthropologist or, and, or, or even, do those terms even make sense for you when you make sense of your professional identity? How do you think about that? They're important terms. I've thought quite a lot about it because, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, I came out of a discipline, engineering, which was all about technical general solutions. <laughs> and then I untrained myself and ended up doing a doctorate in, in human geography, which was heavily at the, in the boundary area with anthropology as well. I mean, it could equally have... Um, been a doctorate that came out of an anthropology department, but I happened to be sitting in a in a geography department, and I was so lucky to be in a in a group of political ecology scholars. Um, so, 
so I certainly, my scholarly identity sits firmly in that space where my core method is ethnography and I and I see a socially sort of constructed world. I see discourses, I see power. I value qualitative and inductive approaches to um, making sense of the world. The data comes first and then the theories come later. So yeah, that, so that, and sort of, in terms of timing, I was lucky because there were conversations emerging among anthropologists um, in the US and in Europe about doing institutional ethnography um, of conservation. So my PhD supervisor, Bill Adams, um, he was collaborating with Pete Brosius and Lisa Campbell and others in the US. And so there were there were these interesting threads that, that influenced me um, in terms of Oh, I can study economists. We can watch them, and right. they became they became the subject matter. Mm. Except it's really hard to write about economists because they don't like it. <laughs> Fair enough. And yeah. you have to understand enough of economics to actually be able to critique it properly. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, how does one navigate that? As as um, I don't think I would call this like being a boundary actor exactly, but how do you? engage with someone that you want to study who's not entirely comfortable with being the object of study in this case this group of economists i mean because i'm sure it's also also we're all people right and so there's going to be the normal human emotions there's going to be the tendency to want to disregard but also maybe to bond with in some ways like how did that play out for you in studying these this group of experts yeah it is uncomfortable and so i mean this kind of approach goes back to Laura Nader's notion of studying up, um, and it was the entire about face in the discipline of anthropology where anthropologists realised, oh, we don't necessarily need to study far away, remote, exotic people. We need to study power, mm. um, mm-hmm. right? So studying up implies, in this case, it implied me studying people who were friends and colleagues before they became um, subjects of my research. Um, so that was tricky. It was tricky to communicate precisely what I was doing also because it, it is, you know, the word ethnography is not in the, in, in the vocabulary of economists necessarily. So for me to say, look, I'm doing an ethnography of this project, I'm studying you, it might have, you know, it might have been laughed off. It might have been, you know, we did interviews, um, but I don't know that I ever really achieved a full understanding um, my colleagues and in that professional milieu of precisely what it was that I was doing. Yeah, the method of participant observation for so many of the positivists in mainstream conservation is not a valid method. Um, so, really? so there is a kind of a cross-disciplinary problem um, there that does need some navigating and it's an ethical problem too. Um, and this question of ethics I think remains unresolved Um when you're doing participant observation in in projects and when you're studying powerful people or people who don't understand the method. I mean, it does seem like a part of the story here is about how different groups within organizations like Conservation International engage with each other and how mm. do you cultivate a space where um, differences in... I have, I have a good friend who's in a PhD program with me at Dartmouth and we talk about the challenges of interdisciplinary work and it feels like it's so easy to kind of lapse into a space of kind of mutual dismissiveness where people don't take the time to understand each other's perspectives. And he says 
that it's helpful to understand the con the constraints people face in the questions they're trying to answer. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a version of putting someone putting yourself in someone else's shoes, right? So okay, like I might not have five thousand observations, but each of my observations was a three hour conversation. Yeah. Right, and so not all observations are created equally. Is kind of a is a it, it's a e e easy example of that idea. But I wonder about you know in your sense over time working at Conservation International, did it feel like there was? And I do want to get to I, I have these questions about the PES scheme itself too. I, I'm just kind yeah. of can't help myself with these other questions too. Um, <laughs> do you have a sense of of progress within the conservation space towards more interdisciplinary understanding and kind of pluralistic perspectives, or does it do you sense this? I want to make sure I ask this question because I feel like it's really important. Do you feel like this is an ongoing challenge that we're we're not getting away from? a lot of the, the the problems that you mentioned in the book of simplification uh being more too a bit too top down versus thinking about the data coming first and the theory coming second how much progress do you feel like there is being made and in your experience you know in the last 10 plus years that's a really great question so i think there are two things going on here i think there's the kind of the human story about how individuals um interact inside conservation organizations and I guess that's a question of organizational culture mm -hmm. and which culture is created by the leadership it sort of hinges on um who you hire what's their disciplinary background how you convene spaces for communication and for sharing of ideas whose knowledge matters the most um whose words are more powerful so, so there is a kind of an experience of power relations and interdisciplinarity or, or not inside conservation organisations. And so I've thought about that in terms of, of knowledge making, that, you know, these are systems of knowledge production inside, inside a conservation NGO or a project. Um, so if we kind of take that as the first part, um, that the conservation organisations curate knowledge and create culture. The second part of it is what's the wider system that they're located in? And, and this is where the blockage is, that in a funding environment where you need to demonstrate organisational success and demonstrate results and where your organisational value hinges upon your reputation, that, that puts certain pressures upon what you can know and what you can say. Um, so there's no incentive at all for conservation organisations to actually deal with the dirty laundry or to lay it all out and speak openly and transparently about the real challenges that they face in the field. Mm. So, so I think progress is, on the one hand, an internal organisational problem, but it's also about the policy environment and the funding environment for conservation organisations. And so both of those things probably need to change and I, I'm so I haven't been on the inside of conservation projects for a while because I've been um, leading an academic scholarly life and you know, I've been in lockdown but I do see the external environment you know you see it on Twitter you see it through the donors you see it through sort of nature-based solutions and and these great proclamations so I don't see progress in that space mm. um, 
Okay. Does that answer your question? I hope yes, so. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. There's just always more questions to, to ask. So, mm. but can, so you mentioned you've mentioned this several times, Sarah, that, that actually pieces of the the PES story in Cambodia. So I'd like to focus in on that because you've mentioned several points to it. So we can segue to that now. You mentioned just now mm. this problem of kind of needing centralized accountability. And it kind of forces you to simplify how you're engaging remotely with this space that's for you far away if you're trying to understand what's happening in Cambodia and you're in D.C. And so that seemed like a really important part of this story. And something you mentioned earlier was needing the data to come first and have the theory come later. And that also seemed like it was a part of this story of we have this kind of idealized theory about how PES schemes should work, how these conservation agreements with communities should work. But the world is more political, is more messy. It's subject to elite capture, et cetera. So can you walk the listeners through a bit, a bit more about what this idealized story was? How, what is this idea of a conservation agreement with a community, this idea of a community interest, how that was kind of idealized, and then how you saw things depart from that idealization and why, like how, what you actually saw unfold. Can you walk us through that actual story and your experience a bit more? Yeah, sure. Okay. So um, conservation agreements, that, that is the, that is conservation international sort of intellectual property, if you like, you know, they spent a team of really smart and well-intended economists spent time adjusting and and kind of reworking the payments for <clears throat> ecosystem services idea into something that would match what they saw as sort of local realities um, so this became a, a more like a community level pes idea um, they avoided the use of the word payments because they saw that as a trigger and as something that would cause conflict and so the language of agreements was a kind of de facto way of referring to PES, but it still got at the core elements of the policy being a, a transaction between a willing buyer and a willing seller. Um, so in taking a community-level approach, this led them into a realm where the PES contracts were not with individuals or private property owners. It was with communities typically who had who were dependent upon natural resources. Um, I think they imagined that these were communities in charge of a commons, um, but a lot of times in practice, you know, this commons actually um, wasn't there. It was either some highly problematic open access property regime or it was a state-owned forest in which communities had very weak property rights. So there were a whole lot of questions around property that were unresolved there, but... So that was a key problematic assumption. Um, but in principle, conservation agreements sound fantastic. Um, why would a community organise itself to conserve resources and be rewarded for that? Resources that they relied upon and needed and cared about. Um, why wouldn't they be facilitated to do that in a fair and open and transparent contract um, with a willing buyer? Um, so that was the concept, and I guess it was a it was crafted as a global program, and it was rolled out in in ten countries, and Cambodia was one of those countries. So there was a, a highly centralized um, conceptualization of policy, and then top down rollout, um, which was 
in part to do with what the donor was wanting. Um, maybe not all conservation projects play out this way, but it, it, this is the way it played out in this case. Um, so in Cambodia, I, you know, most of your assumptions about what is a community, what is property, what is government, these assumptions have to be suspended. Hmm. But the problem is that Cambodia is so complex and so complicated, it usually takes you three to five years to work out that you need to suspend those assumptions. So you need a highly localised and nuanced understanding of the local context to actually be able to anticipate how this thing is going to go. And so I drew on the work of Bruno Latour here. Um, he has done project ethnographies and he has a really powerful concept, which is contextualization. And it refers to sort of a foreign idea, like a foreign body, what happens to it when it arrives in a place and in a context. And in the process of contextualization, what we see is the morphing of the idea. It gets transformed in the process of implementation and local interpretation into something else. Um, so what I found in Cambodia was that all of the key definitional elements of what PES theoretically was meant to be unraveled in practice. So, so the, the key things like conditionality in the contracts, you know, like if you don't provide the service, then you don't get the payment. The conditionality went out the window. Community as well, community choice. That was incredibly hard to implement because community dynamics um, were not amenable to representative and democratic decision-making. Um, mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and the state, the property question was also highly problematic as well because this was in a political environment where the government was intent upon controlling people and controlling nature. So what we ended up with was a project that made communities legible, made nature legible and ultimately um, enhanced state power, which was highly authoritarian state power um, mm -hmm. as an end result. Um, so, yeah, so there's the, the core here is that um, policy in practice is often not what you intend it to be. And if you don't have the skill set to see that, you may not even understand the kinds of unintended consequences and side effects that you've generated. Right. I mean, two of the more powerful concrete examples you give, Sarah, that that resonate with me is this idea of the, the, the matrix, the kind of agreement matrix that people have to kind of fill out. And that is an, kind of a analytical imposition on the local reality. Mm -hmm. And then this kind of dichotomization such an academic word dichotomization mm -hmm. of the landscape into i think it was like forest and non-forest mm -hmm. from above because we need to know like okay if we're going to like pay people to conserve stuff where are they doing that we we can't deal with like a very complicated landscape we need to know like oh we're paying we're paying them to conserve like this spot over here this forest stuff over here so we're going to say that's forest and this is stuff is not yeah yeah it was an analytical imposition and and these these ideas of paying people to not forest was a precursor to what we now have as red plus um, right yeah and, and and something else you mentioned in the book that i think is really important is this idea this assumption that there's a kind of equal impact on the forest and the environment versus well right i mean part of what under, underlies a lot of the critique of this is that communities are heterogeneous right that there's there's asymmetries in power and influence and often those fall under you know the those cor correlate with gender and race and ethnicity and age 
and different people have different influences on the environment. So if you're kind of pay the community, it's there's not just one community here and you're not just helping them resolve like this. You're not just solving the tragedy of the commons and getting this win-win solution. And that's something else you talk about really effectively is that part of these narratives that there is this kind of win-win that yeah. if we pay the yeah. community, the community, of course, will want to help. And so we're homogenizing our understanding of what the community is by assuming in this case that everyone is equally impacting the environment. And so everyone will equally lessen their impact versus, okay, no, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah. I both understand it, but I, I feel like when we walk around the world in our own communities, we see that people are different and impacting the world differently. Um, so I, I, I both understand the need to simplify, but also it feels like there's this kind of a smell test that some of these analytical simplifications fail because we also, I mean, it's the interesting thing about being a social scientist, right, is that we are we are one of the things we study and we're always like collecting information and data in our daily lives, right? And so I feel like when we're walking around communities in our own communities, we see that they're not homogenous themselves. Anyway, this may be a bit of a tangent, but I did, that was another example I wanted to bring up of what I found powerful in your discourse is that this is, we got to get away from necessarily kind of win-win framings as well. Because that's, you know, there's this really great book called Winners Take All by uh, Gariteratus is the last name, I think. And it's, he critiques this win-win framing from the perspective of, well, what he says is that win-win framings are really successful because they don't question status quos and distributions of power, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's a, it's a very kind of instrumental interpretation. It's like, well, yeah, if I'm on board with this win-win framing if I'm a powerful person because it means I'm not going to have to give up anything. We can kind of keep on going. It's so convenient. Yeah. And um, uh, it's too good to be true. You can't yeah. have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. But win-win framing is also part of neoliberal thinking. You know, there was, it, and it's sort of the literature tells us about that, this kind of yeah. zombie neoliberal project that just never seems to go away. There is a really deep desire to solve and to fix and to not challenge the status quo. Right. Here's one question. Is there anything helpful about a win-win framing? Like, is could a, could is there some is there a place where it's beneficial to kind of bring people together? Is there a rhetorical power to it that we'd want to save from this critique? And I'm not trying to suggest I know there is, but it's something I've struggled with a little bit. Is is win-win framing always this bad thing that's punting on punting on dealing with our underlying inequalities? Because we I agree that it is. Is there a time and place for win-win framings? Is a short way to put it. Okay, so I mean, I guess <clears throat> part of the problem with win-win framing is the word framing. <laughs> okay. Because it's implying that there's there's some kind of intervention here. There's it, It's implying partial forms of knowledge and formatted ways of seeing the world. Win-win for whom is, mm -hmm. is the question. Who did the framing? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so I actually... I don't see a place for win-win framing per se when it's intimately tied up with processes of intervention, um, which are discursive and power-laden. The only place for win-win would be if it emerges from a very open dialogue between parties and between different knowledge forms in which all voices are heard. Win-win for whom? We have to hear from everybody in the equation mm. before we can even 
begin to consider what that might be. I don't think we can rule out synergistic and beneficial relationships between people and nature. Um, there have to be good outcomes and good processes somewhere, but I don't mm -hmm. think it's going to come from a win-win framing. Well, it might get retrospectively lab labeled that. <laughs> right. Well, the win-win for whom is very powerful, right? Like who is doing the framing is always a question we want yeah. to ask. That makes a yeah. lot of sense to me. Yeah. So can you talk to me about your understanding of participation? Because that that can fall prey to some of the processes that we're talking about, right? That kind of participation can become a rubber stamp and something can be participation participatory in name only if we say, oh, well, 50 people from the community showed up, so therefore it's participatory versus participation being an actual psychological experience. Can you talk to me about mm. your your work and your current thinking on the idea of participation? Yeah, it's such a um, compelling idea. It's an important um, field of practice to consider. And obviously it comes from the 1980s and, and Robert Chambers' very original ideas about needing to hear from those who were the subjects and the objects of development projects. Um, in my experience, participation is is fraught, and it sort of there is this spectrum between um, terrible participation, where you have manufactured consent and manipulation of communities and coercive sort of, um, forms of engagement, and at the other end of the at the other end of the spectrum, there are things that are much more like dialogues. I guess true participation is a kind of an ideal to strive towards, but you probably never really reach it in practice because we are people and all of these convening spaces and, and the ways in which people get brought together um, into processes that are framed by whom? By others. There seems to be some kind of fraught problem at every step of the way. Um, but it's also, that's not a reason not to do it. I guess you just have to try hard to do participatory processes well, being aware of what can go wrong. Um, so in Cambodia, there were these, um, you know, there was the very classic committee-making approach to participation, which we see everywhere across conservation and development in the Global South in particular. Um, and the, you know, the concept was that if you could build a representative committee that could speak for the community, then you have um, an actor or a representative body to deal with. Um, and that seemed quite straightforward. And we sort of took a formulaic approach to doing that um, in the Cambodian case, trying to run local elections um, where community members would elect their representatives to be the, the main participants in a project. Um, but that was something that um, I didn't anticipate it. I didn't, I was too naive at the time, but that became something that caught the attention of the ruling party in Cambodia, which is Hun Sen's Cambodian People's Party, which has been in power um, since the 1980s. Hun Sen has been the leader since the end of the Vietnamese occupation of Cambodia in the 1970s. So this is a party state in which the party is obsessed with control of all potential forms of counter-narratives or counter-organising. So committee-making in villages in remote Cam Cambodia automatically instantly became a highly political activity and we were subject to party surveillance and ultimately party interference. What starts out as good intentions can often be derailed. Okay. 
So are you, do you feel skeptical of, for example, the, the case in Costa Rica, which you mentioned briefly in the book as it's been held up as a kind of paragon of successful PES based conservation. Does your experience in Cambodia, how much do you generalize it beyond Cambodia? Are you skeptical of PES schemes being implemented in these nine other countries that it was implemented in? Or do you think, well, if things were different, I could see this working out better? I think Cambodia is an extreme case of it being a difficult place to implement a, a policy model. Um, but every country has its own version of this tale of, of mm. local forms of, sort of political dynamics and cross-cultural distortions and misinterpretations that morph the policy model in place. So, so similar kinds of problems arose in other countries where this model was implemented um, rural China, rural Madagascar are examples that come to mind. Okay. Um, so much hinges upon what is a community and what is property. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Can you say a bit more about what you mean by what is property? It, for me, it gets back to <clears throat> assumptions around what's a forest or do you own that land or... Um, okay. Do you own that river? And therefore, can you control the actions that take place in, in relation to that resource or that, that piece of property? Yeah. So there wasn't a very nuanced understanding of property or property as process um, or as something that was much more about the dynamics of access and control. Um, if that had been better integrated into the policy models and the policy thinking at the outset, um, it might have been less fraught. Um, okay. But I think in so many of these places, you know, forest ownership is not straightforward, for example. Okay. So moving forward, so you've shifted spaces, as you said, now you're, I think you said, I don't think I'm projecting, you're kind of living the academic life. Moving forward, are you interested in engaging outside of academia with conservation practitioners and organizations. Is that a space you think there needs to be more connections between academia and the practice of conservation? I mean, this is something I've struggled with being an academic my whole life that I feel like there's often under leveraged capital and intellectual resources within academia and we should kind of be engaged. But of course, then you, you face these hard questions about what does it mean to be engaged and how do you do it in a good way, as opposed to the ways in which we often problematize. Moving forward for yourself, are you interested in, in engaging as an academic, but also still working with like CI and other organizations? Is that something that interests you? It does in the sense that, you know, even though I'm an academic, there's part of me that will always be an inner, inner environmentalist, like that's never going away. Um, so part of the thing that frustrates me about being stuck in academia, sometimes it does feel a bit stuck. That there, mm -hmm. there are barriers to engagement and there are demands on your time that prevent you from from supporting actions to yeah to conserve biodiversity and to support communities to do that um that said i think um the mainstream conservation industry is a little bit impenetrable um as i was saying before about the sort of the political economy of global conservation there are a there's a small group of big organisations that do function rather like corporations, you know, and they protect 
their reputations, they protect insider knowledge um, because that's in their own interests. And there has been a sort of an ongoing convergence and sort of, um, there's this between capitalist and corporate interests in the extractive sector and the mainstream sort of conservation organisations. So, so I think we need to distinguish in the conservation landscape between, yeah, what's mainstream and what's congenial to global capital versus what's radical, what's, what's diffused, what's a network, what's much more democratic in practice. So I think mm-hmm. navigating the nuances in the industry would be a first step. Um, and I, but I would be genuinely interested in engaging with, you know, this word practitioners, in, with practitioners about practice um, mm-hmm. because it, at the end of the day it's not necessarily about your policy model or your policy fix or your panacea. It's about the everyday actions around that. So how do practitioners think about what they do? How do they respond when things don't go to plan? How do they treat each other? How do they feel about working in a in a big conservation organization? So there's a kind of ethics of practice that I think mm. is really fascinating. And if we if we all come back to our common humanity um, and try to break down some of the disciplinary boundaries, then we can start talking, yeah, about other ways to do conservation. Mm. So and so I, I I sort of that those are the points of engagement that would actually interest me. Yeah. All right. So you studied economists before and you think you might do it again is the short. <laughs> they probably don't want to know me. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Because you can be that really annoying anthropologist, you know, the one that doesn't shut up, that wants to only talk about, you know, the village or the valley where they spent 10 years, you know, like anthropology has its problems too. Um, well, let me ask you this question. Cause I've, yeah. we mentioned kind of in group out group, which is something I think a lot about. And one of the central aspects of the panacea problem, as I see it, is that it's a group-based identification process where a group Mm. consolidates by saying these other people have this other policy. It's not as good as the one we're promoting. So let's let's promote this one. Yeah, You could then, you know, and then there's a group of folks who say, hey, that's not so good. Let's think about this more critically. How fair or helpful is it to then ask, though, okay, but like being critical is its own signal to another group of folks who are saying, well, we're the critical folks. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to apply the critical lens to everything the way you apply the economic lens to everything. Is there a limit to that as a social process as well? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's it's one it is one of the um in critical social sciences, sometimes there's this kind of merry-go-round where all you ever do is just critique and deconstruct. Um, and that's really easy to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> critique is too easy. So, so I, yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, okay. That there's one, there's one tribe that wants to solve things and do solutions. There's another tribe that wants to pick them apart. So yeah. how do we then bridge between those two worlds um, is a very live question. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, Sarah, because of your positionality there, right, is that you've been in these different spaces and you've traversed them. And and so you've got this Mm. kind of dynamic history. And that's Mm. why I also wanted to ask you about your interest in engaging with with practitioners, because I feel like one of the main ways to it's healthy to kind of have one toe out of one's kind of intellectual tribe and say, hey, isn't this silly that I'm doing this? 
you know, because it's kind of reminding yourself not to take yourself too seriously, even when you think what you're doing is important. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I, I guess in in having sort of diagnosed what I thought was wrong with, with mainstream conservation and, and labelling it as corporate nature, you know, one of the problems was technical hubris and, and a kind of arrogance about about my solution and my way and my fix. So it got me imagining what's the antidote to all of that. And, and one of the core elements has to be humility to not take yourself too seriously. Yep. <laughs> like, yeah, I have an idea, but what do you think? Um, and maybe to also give up on the idea of there being um, global models or generalizable solutions that maybe we have to give up on thinking in abstract terms and global terms and only think in response to place. So can we think locally and can we be humble and can we listen to grow up solutions um, from the ground up is, is, is something that I'm, I'm interested in. I've already asked you a, a, a specific version of this, but moving forward, Sarah, what are the challenges that you still want to work to confront, and what are the the projects that are that you're excited to work on in the future, related to what we've been talking about, or maybe is there a whole new direction for you? Well, for me, I'm still yeah. There's there's an inner practitioner that still wants to actually see real live things that work. Yeah. So I'm just starting a new project, um, which is asking about, you know, what is good practice in um, carbon removal in landscapes? So in some ways it's a continuation of all of this work in, in asking after landscape interventions and how do you do it well. But this time I'm shifting, I'm finally exiting the forests of Southeast Asia and I'm engaging back home in Australia where we have these really interesting carbon farming schemes and a kind of domestic carbon market that is basically modelled off payments for environmental services, but with different property contexts and different landscape dynamics. Um, so I hope that there is scope there to engage with practitioners, yeah, and to delve further into these questions of an ethic of care and what are the ethics of practice? So it's not just about the policy content, but it's about the processes and the people. Yeah, I saw actually at the last minute today that you have a TED talk about carbon, um, yeah, carbon credits. I mean, it, it does make sense that like when we talk about like uh, at least the discourse that I'm aware of, we talk a lot about carbon credits and carbon offsets as right. being. And well, it's interesting, right? Because you have a carbon market. And that can be its own thing, right? Cap and trade. And that is its own panacea. And then you add to that carbon offsets, which I feel like we often assume that those are almost the same policy, but that one really is like a payment for ecosystem service scheme, the way yeah. I think about it. Yeah. You're paying for carbon sequestration as a service. Yeah. And we almost sometimes assume that, oh, well, if cap and trade has to have a carbon offset program, it's like, well, no, it actually doesn't. These are different things. It does some sense making for me when you say some of this earlier PES work is almost like a precursor to now what we're seeing is the dominance of offset programs, which are very much like they're very dominant in a lot of the carbon yeah. policy space. It, yeah, yeah, they really are. And so, yeah, PES morphed into yeah payments for avoided deforestation. We're going to pay you not to do this. 
Yep. Um, or we're going to pay you to undertake certain behaviour changes, which will generate carbon credits. Um, so obviously, I mean, it's 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 not okay to produce cheap credits um, that are flaky and then sell them to polluters if the polluters continue as business as usual. Like that, that is not morally viable. Right. Um, but I mean, it seems to suffer. If, if, Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, but in the Australian context, there is sort of there are some interesting openings whereby you know the production of carbon credits, dare I say, um, could do could generate some win win type scenarios. Interesting. Uh, where it becomes an important income stream, it becomes for Aboriginal communities um, an opportunity to be on country and to manage um, their customary lands, being subsidised to do that. And you get social benefits and biodiversity benefits as well. So I'm starting to see this, you know, the mobilization of the carbon market as something that's not about carbon per se, um, but it's all about the co-benefits. What can what can the engine of carbon actually do for biodiversity and people? That's really interesting. Yeah, you 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 also might be interested. We just posted this episode today, interviewed Danny Collingward, who runs an NGO called Carbon Plan. He has a book out called Making climate policy work, which is really great. And they talk all about offsets. Okay. Um, but we just published that episode this morning. Oh, I'll have a listen. Yeah. It's a hot space. Yeah. 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 Cause one of the challenges I've had in the offset and the P uh, space is that again, it's so easy in our, in our critique of these policies, it would be, it could be so tempting to overgeneralize and think, okay, well, this is going to be a problem anywhere. I see Kind of corporate PES, and I have this lens, and it's like, okay, I'm I, I'm not open to the idea that this could um, be implemented with different ethics and with different outcomes. And so it's interesting to hear that there, there, there could be an alternative discourse about PES schemes and policy. I hope so. The jury's out. Some people, I mean, there are the kind of the anti-offsetting sort of essentialists or the anti-market essentialists that are just yep. going to say no way. But, but part of my work shows that, you know, this isn't, it's not really a market, you know, it's kind of like a government intervention and maybe with some subsidies, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of it is open to interpretation. So if you give agency to the people on the ground to deploy that policy in a way that works for them and that works for nature and ecosystems and biodiversity, then, then maybe there is something good. So in some ways it's about flipping the thinking and saying, um, seeing power and possibility in in grassroots actors. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.